it's going to be very hard to redirect that one speed elephant in the direction of bending the arc, for lack of a better phrase, of carbon pollution back towards drawdown. And so it's going to be, in my view, ultimately up to the population of the world to figure out a way to collectively, forcefully send the message that governments and corporations are going to have to do this. And it has to be out of self-interest. It's got to be in the self-interest of the people who hold reins of power. It's got to be in the self-interest of the people who control corporations to make the moves. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. On the last episode of the SIDcast, I had Marin Greenleaf as my guest, a professor at Dartmouth College, an expert on climate change, and an anthropologist who's doing research in the Brazilian rainforest, among other places, to try to understand what could be done and how to manage and address climate change. On this episode of the SIDcast, we continue on a similar theme. David Johnson is my guest, and David has a little bit different profile, but just as interesting. He's a lawyer, he's a teacher and a writer, he served as general counsel for several tech companies in Silicon Valley over the last 20 years. He's also held teaching and research posts at Stanford Law School, as well as the Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. Dave's client list includes some of the biggest names in science and tech, Apple and Google, among others. He's testified before Congress and the California Assembly on various technology policy matters and has been an expert witness on intellectual property as well. He's got a degree in addition to his law degree and his work that he's done as an attorney in environmental law and policy at Stanford. In his thesis, he was looking at software design methods and their potential to improve global environmental policy, especially obviously with respect to climate change. He's working on a book that I think could be a big book. It's called Climate Activism by Design, which is about bringing design principles and design thinking, which is such a big idea and a great idea about how to think about accomplishing anything, bringing design principles to bear on citizen activists who are responding to corporate and government inaction on climate change. So David and I, as always, have a wide ranging discussion, but I ask him a bunch of things about climate change. It's been in the public eye for a long, long time. What's going on? Why is it getting worse? What could be done? And he talks about in this book that he's working on and says, quote, what we need is a billion climate activists. It would be kind of remarkable to think about that you and I, that individuals, by our energy, our actions, our behaviors, our activism, can make a difference when it seems like we're struggling in so many other ways. But might be a little bit naive, right? But I like the idea. I like the idea a lot. And I don't know that we're going to get a billion climate activists. I don't know that everyone's going to buy into it. In fact, we obviously know many people will not for all sorts of reasons. But can we move the needle? Can we improve the situation? Can we reduce emissions by our own individual actions, our own campaigning and our own behaviors ourselves? Maybe the answer is yes. The other thing is when you look at all the things that have been going on and how bad the situation is with climate change, you could start to feel a little bit hopeless, a little bit sad. Like, what's going to happen? But if each of us as individuals actually try to do some little thing, whatever it happens to be, then we empower ourselves, right? We all of a sudden feel like we're important, that we can make a difference. So David and I talk about all of these ideas and spend actually a fair amount of time talking about design thinking. I don't think I've had a previous guest on the SIDcast that was an expert on design thinking. 
And I think that's kind of interesting. He actually applies design thinking to legal systems, which is unusual and different. David is a wide-ranging thinker. He's addressing ultra-critical perspectives and challenges. He's trying to do it in a different way. And I think there's a lot to learn. I know I learned a lot from talking to David, so I'm sure you will as well. So on the SIDCast, David Johnson. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I am delighted to have as my guest today, Dave Johnson. Hi there, Dave. Hi, Sid. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, that's good to have you. Where are you right now as we talk? I am in Petaluma, California, just north of San Francisco, watching the rain come down, which is a blessed rarity here. Did you have fires in the fire seasons of the last two or three years in particular? We had plenty of fires and the conventional wisdom now is that the fire season lasts exactly 12 months. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will talk about that because... Climate change is certainly one of the primary topics on our agenda. I want to start with design thinking, which is such a big topic. We have courses like that at Dartmouth. And of course, Stanford has been the pioneer and the D school, as it's called, Mm. was created there. Actually, as an aside, do you know if there are other design schools already in other universities? Has this been taking off as a school-wide phenomenon? The first one I would say is University of Potsdam in Germany. And the reason is because Hasso Plattner decided to start a D-School simultaneously at his home university in Potsdam, Germany, and also at Stanford. So Potsdam has grown its D-School in its own way, and Stanford grew it in their own way. They're slightly different, but those are the two that I am keenly aware of. Now, there is a program called the University Innovation Fellows, UIF for short, here at the D-School. It's been running for at least the last five years, run by Professor Leticia Britos Cabanaro, originally from Uruguay, and she's an amazing doer. She built the UIF program for the very purpose of reaching out to universities around the world and having student faculty dyads come to the D-School, spend a year learning all about design thinking with the objective of taking design thinking back and seeding it at their university. The school's been active in trying to Johnny Appleseed the design thinking DNA around the world. So the list of universities and schools that are entertaining or beginning a design thinking program is longer than I could possibly recite. How many of them have fully integrated active D schools or design schools that are teaching design thinking? I'd say probably 15 or 20, and I can't name them other than Potsdam. So it's getting its traction. Yeah. It's almost like a social movement or intellectual movement, if you will. Hmm. And why is it growing like this? I think the short answer is people find it helpful. People find it useful. The students love it. It opens a different side of their perspective. It opens a different side of their thinking and analytic operation around problem solving, seeing the world. It helps them think more collaboratively in teams. It teaches, we do put a heavy emphasis on teaching students to work collaboratively in teams rather than individually. We put an emphasis on working with empathy, as is pretty widely known. Students come away almost uniformly saying, this was a great experience. I loved it. It makes me feel stronger intellectually, and it makes me feel motivated to be more creative in my life than I thought I had permission to be previously. Actually, let's go back to first principles on it. Sure. What is design thinking? I'll give you my take on design thinking. I think other teachers and practitioners would speak to it differently. I see design thinking as what I would call the motor 
of design work. In other words, the work of designers is much broader than design thinking. Design thinking is a part. It's a small part of the overall cell operation of designers' work. There's a guy, Dominique Schiama, for a time at least, may still be the dean of the straight school of design in Paris and Singapore. And I like the way he approached it, which is design thinking is necessary to the work of design, but design thinking is not itself design. So design thinking, I would describe as a method, a process that designers learn for how to approach the problems of design, whether that's product design, whether they're designing fashion, it could be artifacts, or it could be intangibles, such as systems, methods for getting work done or solving problems. That's my view in a nutshell, but I don't know that everybody ascribes to that particular view. Maybe you alluded to this earlier, but where did this idea actually come from? Who gave birth to this idea? Who's the godfather of design thinking? <laughs> godmother for that matter. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure that there is one. And many people, certainly around here at the D School, David Kelly is the name people drop because he was professor of engineering and he is... One of the two, and I don't remember the name of the other gentleman who kickstarted the creation of the D School something like 15 years ago. Design thinking is much, much older than 15 years. My view, again, on this is that human beings have been doing design for millennia. You can go back as far as you want to humanids who are chipping stone to create blades and then put blades on the tip of projectiles to create arrows, et cetera. It's all in the nature of design. So whether they were doing design thinking at the time, they were solving problems and they were solving problems via design. And from that point forward across human history, we've seen design in many shapes and forms from the Wright brothers to the space shuttle, et cetera. The laundry list is long. So I'm not sure I could point to the godfather of design. My personal point of view that I will add is I began studying design in the space of software design, specifically object-oriented modeling. And I consider the godfather of object-oriented modeling in software to be Grady Booch, Ivar Jacobson, a compatriot of his. That was probably about 40 years when C++ was being built and they worked on C++ and built a more robust way of doing software. And it markedly improved software and its both design and function. And that's where I glommed on to the idea that it might have applicability, not just to physical systems and spaces, but also non-physical space like human systems, policy, law, et cetera. So design is pretty broad when you get right down to it. I mean, if you're talking about the first humans creating spheres and all the rest, I guess the question that some people will say, well, what's the big deal then if people have been doing this forever? Why do we need a label and why do we call it design thinking? And why all of a sudden do we need all these schools and all these people talking about it if it's innate to human nature? Nobody taught those fellows who are creating the spheres. It's somehow innate to human nature to some extent. So maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, sure. And as time passed, nobody taught them how to make fire or how to speak French or how to paint or do mathematics or astrophysics either. It's an evolution, of course. My take on this is that design thinking in its most inchoate form was always somewhere inside the sphere of design work. 
But I'd say, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, designers in the academy, including engineering, where a lot of design work is done, at least on campuses, started looking at the process as opposed to just assuming the process was innate in the students or the practitioners. And they started to pull out the process and they gave it a name. I don't know if that's the name I would have given it, but design thinking was the name that was given to it. And their developed interest in studying what I call the motor, the process of thinking, of analysis, of creativity, of different approaches to solving problems, which is really at core for doing design work. And so it gathered its energy in the same way that any intellectual endeavor in the university gathers its energy. There's enough people who are interested in looking at it that it starts to become an area of inquiry. Right. As you say, as you describe it, a bit of a historic perspective, there is some reverse engineering that happens in many fields. And then you understand at a certain level, the basic building blocks of whatever it is you're interested in. And then you can start to do analysis, research, go much deeper on each of those building blocks to yeah. understand yeah. what they're all about. I mean, that's actually a common method in research more generally. I mean, it's even a method I've used in a couple of books that I've written where the research was very inductive. And actually, I'm curious whether that's a word that resonates in this thinking world. But just on my example, I would talk to literally hundreds of people and I'd have a general question I was interested in. Question like, why do seemingly smart people do really stupid things? Or why do some people seem to be generators of talent continuously? How do they do that? I find people that fall into these categories. I study them. I talk to them. I talk to people all around them. And in a sense, I reverse engineer to say, okay, here are the building blocks. And mm. then I start to talk a little bit about that. And that's an inductive process as opposed to a deductive process of research. I'd say all that because when you describe this reverse engineering, of course, it makes perfect sense. But I'm just curious about the inductive reasoning, how that fits in, if that's a core element in design thinking. Actually, it's really interesting that you bring that up. I like that description and I've not read your books, but I almost have my own answer for why some people seem to be able to develop such great talent. My go-to response, and it's a guess, would be empathy, which is something we talk about a lot at the D-School. But to answer your question, we talk about abductive reasoning. We talk about developing hypotheses in the space between induction and deduction and testing those hypotheses. Sort of the original model for design thinking was to do something along these lines. Interview the user with empathy to find out what the end user of the desired product to be designed or the problem to be solved. Lots and lots of interviewing like you do for every one of your books. Lots of interviewing of these folks trying to find out what they see is the need. Design is about trying to meet the user's need as opposed to creating a product that I think will meet the user's need and handing it to them and hoping. And then with that information, going back and prototyping in a very rough form, usually the object to create just some sort of model you can put in the person's hand. That's the prototype phase. You give it back to the users. You let them play with it, answer questions, say what they like, say what they don't like. And then you take that information, you go back and you iterate your prototype. You do that numerous times. You get to a point where you actually build a prototype that has some functionality and you experiment with and test that, again, with users, not always, but oftentimes with users as well to try and march step towards a beta product that actually has baked into it all of the user needs being met, and then the product refinement can begin. Across that process, there's quite a bit of abductive reasoning where 
We take the information, we hypothesize about what we think might be something that would fit the user's need, meet the user's need. We put it back in front of them and you do that iteratively. That's what we call the five hexagons model. Some people may be aware of or have seen the visual, the diagrammatic online of five hexagons. As an aside, we've moved forward a little bit from the five hexagons to what we call the eight design abilities as a way of teaching the more intangible aspect of thinking about problem solving. To answer your question, we focus on the abductive piece. I want to go a little bit deeper into the process in a moment, but you were suggesting that it was empathy that would have been one of the primary drivers of these people that are great at generating and actually regenerating. And obviously it's a bit more complicated story. That is a part of it, but not entirely. There are people that have no empathy, it seems. <laughs> I don't know if anyone has no empathy, but you mentioned uh, Oracle. You think about a Larry Ellison type of character, not exactly someone you put high on the list for empathetic leaders, but he generated and supported and developed incredible amount of talent. Most are not like him. Most are closer to the bit more of a nurturing type. But I want to ask about empathy specifically, because I just had a conversation the other day with someone, really an astute observer of leaders and the CEO of uh, her own startup. It's more than a startup now company. And she was reacting to empathy as being almost like she noted that there's all these CEOs that are getting quoted left and right about mentioning empathy. And they never mentioned it before. You never heard anything about it. In other words, it's the idea du jour. It's the thing they're latching onto in the way that CEOs and other senior executives, because people just don't know how to build a company and be successful. It's a million things you need to do. But when you find a answer that seems like a great answer, intuitive, everyone's talking about it, they jump all over it. I won't say everyone, of course, but many don't really internalize it and behave in that way. It's more of a label. I don't know whether you're seeing that maybe in part as an outgrowth of the popularity of design thinking, but empathy, of course, has a whole other genesis, maybe from specifically the leadership arena. What do you think about that? Is that something you're seeing? Is that an issue here? Because who doesn't want to be an empathetic leader? Everyone knows that. Yeah, they know that's a great point. Let me take a back up and go up to 40,000 feet here for a second. I came to Silicon Valley in 1991 and started working here in about 95 when I got out of school and have been working for, you know, the last 30 years in the Valley. And it goes without saying, this is no revelation, that every couple of years, there's a new flotilla of buzzwords in the business community. I think empathy can be categorized as yet another buzzword, which is a term that has some inherent meaning, but it gets lost on the larger crowd because it's more about saying the most current idea that's coming out of the B schools or engineering schools than it is about actually understanding what the phrase means at a deeper level. Because most of these business books, including yours, have real content in them. They have real thought behind them. They've got real people who have succeeded or failed talking about their experiences and there's real learnings to be had there, but partly in the nature of marketing a book and partly in the nature of making it easy to consume, sometimes it gets nuggetized into buzzwords. For 30 years, I've been fly swatting buzzwords around every company I've been in and even the law firms I've been in. I have if you can't tell, a little bit of a disdain for the general buzzword. And I would say that empathy is one of them, even though it came out of the design thinking realm. I don't know if it originally came out of the D school, so I won't go that far. It has real meaning and it's powerful. But to just say, like I did, leaders need empathy is far too superficial to carry any weight. 
I understand why founders and startup company leaders and even more mature leaders in more mature companies, and particularly my personal take, oftentimes it emanates from the HR department, is that oftentimes, like you say, the word du jour or the phrase or idea du jour can very much get in the way of the real objective that a person or an organization is trying to accomplish. So yeah, I am on board the idea that empathy has been overused and perhaps misunderstood as it emerged from the design thinking space and got out into the wild unrestrained without a uh, user's manual. And so I suppose I'm as guilty as anyone in bandying the word about. And so I agree to a certain extent with your CEO friend who says, hey, you know, everybody's talking about empathy, but empathy was around for a long, long time before it became a buzzword in business. So what's new or different about it? Well, ultimately, you have to do a deep dive, whether that means read a book or attend a couple of lectures or talk to somebody who's an expert in the space to understand more why that particular human skill may or may not have applicability in certain situations mostly business situations. It's interesting. There are these other words that it's hard to argue with them than to get overused. Kind of like a Kleenex thing, right? The brand name becomes the thing, the yeah. label for the product. Yeah. Because as you were talking, I was thinking, well, you know, authenticity is in that category too. Who doesn't want to be authentic? Who doesn't <laughs> want to be an authentic leader? But what does it really mean? I think this probably happens. This is more how intellectual pursuits occur. There's an idea. It's a pretty good idea. It gets built, built, built. Then it gets so overtaken. It becomes a very common thing. It starts to lose its meaning. Then the reaction kicks in. But how actually it's not that good. It's not just that you're overusing it, but it might not be that good. So an example of authenticity, Jeff Pfeffer, who's a professor at Stanford's Business School, a very famous professor and colleague, has written about what's wrong with authenticity and how that's not necessarily the best thing to do to put all your cards on the table. What kind of logic is that if you want to define it that way? And then for empathy, maybe empathy became a thing label in part because of emotional intelligence, which became a gigantic thing. I think in the 90s, the first book started to come out mm -hmm. on emotional intelligence and every business school, every school is teaching emotional intelligence. But the truth, and some people have started to say this as well, which is it's actually dangerous. You could use the techniques of emotional intelligence and I'll say the techniques of empathy, if you will, for nefarious means. In other words, to manipulate people. Absolutely. So it just goes to show you that people that are throwing around a lot of these terms Everything has got multiple layers to it. It doesn't mean that the core idea is a bad idea. In the context of design thinking, I 100% get this notion of empathy being critical mm. component to it. But that's just a bit of an aside about buzzwords and leadership. Yeah, I want to add on to that because number one, I mentioned her earlier, Leticia Britos Cabanaro, and I have taught together multiple times. She likes to make the point that empathy not only is not the same as sympathy, and we talk about the differences in the two, but empathy is a sort of innate skill that oftentimes sociopaths are very, very deft at using for, like you say, nefarious reasons. And it's important to understand that it's a powerful tool and has to be used with quite a bit of care. I want to mention also something that Mark Lemley, who's a very well-known intellectual property professor here at Stanford Law School, he said once that as he was coming up and he was starting to do his scholarship, and this may resonate with you because you have such a long history of scholarship where you start off and you write, you come up with original ideas or the next step on someone else's building stepping stone. And that's all good. And you're out there and you've got original stuff. And he says, you know, when you've arrived, when other people figure that it's in their interest to build their scholarship by trying desperately to disprove your scholarship. And so there's this 
natural, and that's not pejorative, it's just the way it works. There's sort of this natural feedback loop where as ideas gain their traction and they get out into the general public and people seem to like it, it's a natural next step that there are going to be people who want to criticize it because there's something to say there. And some of that criticism is healthy and useful in furthering both restraining, reshaping, honing the idea as it moves forward. And some of it is just, for lack of a better phrase, complaining in scholarship. It's to be expected that there are always going to be bomb throwers from the upper level. And it comes with the territory. And hopefully the general body of work that's being developed can manage the bomb throwers, maybe learn a little bit from them, but also improve the quote unquote product as it moves forward and take into account what some of the bomb throwers are saying. And that's certainly happening with design thinking. It's already late in developing its own scholarship and almost uh, preliminary canon in design thinking. We need more people thinking hard about it abstractly and writing good scholarship about it in the more abstract way to try and refine and define what design thinking is and isn't. In that vein, I'm not sure if you've heard this critique will resonate, but I've heard it from some people in marketing, marketing professors, say in business schools, who throw up their hand and say, what is so new about this? We've always been talking about users or customers. We've always been paying attention to them and how they're using our products. I mean, that's what marketing and consumer behavior as part of marketing in particular. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that something you've heard? And what do you think? Because I'm hearing this as a uh, interested observer from the outside. I'm not a marketing professor not a design thinking scholar, but I find it interesting to kind of hear the pushback. And it only happens once design thinking becomes like a big deal that people are talking about. Yeah, I think there's some merit to that point of view. I'll say this based on my experience in several companies, which is marketing departments, in my view, don't do the same thing that designers do. Yes, they look at focus groups. They look at consumer buying patterns. They respond to that data They look at packaging, they look at shelf placement, they look at all manner of trying to get the product positioned in the marketplace optimally, et cetera. And of course, that's going to require some significant work on what the end consumer wants or what the marketing department wants the end user to think they want, because virtually every marketing department is driven by a for-profit organization that's doing everything that a for-profit organization does. Design thinking certainly talks about the end user, but it's not necessarily in a profit motive mindset. It's not limited to the packaging of the product, the sale of the product. Steve Jobs is famous for, I'm going to paraphrase him here, for saying people think that design is how the product looks. We don't think that at all. Design is how the product works. So the design at its core is going from the idea, the concept, to actually creating the service or product, virtually none of which has anything to do with the marketing department in most companies, at least tech companies that I've been. Marketing has very little input. They may be called in occasionally, but that part is done elsewhere than the marketing department. Marketing department is generally said, this is the product we're developing now. It's going to be available in 8, 12, or 15 months. We want you to start thinking about how you're going to interface the exterior buying public and market the product that we're developing and giving you. Now, some good marketing people, I'm confident, would say, oh, no, we need to be or we are more deeply involved at the early stage of the design. And that may be the case. But generally speaking, in my view, marketing comes later in the process. 
So they talk to users and they tap into the user base, the consumer base, but for a little bit of a different reason than designers do. Fair enough. Yeah, you know, you said earlier that design thinking is not just something that could be applied and used for products, but for systems and intangibles. And I'm very interested in that. You've in particular thought about design thinking for legal systems. So maybe we'll take that as an example, because that's kind of your day job as an intellectual property lawyer, I think, in Silicon Valley. How can you help us think about design thinking for legal systems? I did my thesis, as I alluded to earlier, trying to apply design to law and policy. And I looked at object-oriented design. I also looked a little bit at fuzzy systems, fuzzy set theory, but we can leave that to the side for the moment. And what I saw was that object modeling unequivocally proved that as a design methodology for software, it proved in computing that it had actual tangible efficiencies and improved results in the final output. And I had known and had continued my research for during my studies. I'd known for some time as a lawyer generally that when government makes law, when the government tries to take policy and turn it into law and impose on a society the policy via law, there's too much attention, almost exclusively attention aimed at writing the law and creating the inputs of an input-output cycle. The input being, here's the law, here's the objective, stated objective, and here's the money. It's passed the law, put it out there into the world, go at it. And there's virtually no method, there's no operational function in the law to capture data about the output, the function, the performance of that law, and whether it's meeting policy objectives or not. The feedback loop is completely broken. And that's just the way politics operates. And it's not just American politics. And I thought that there had to be a way to close that loop where you would get feedback from a particular policy back in, for lack of a better phrase, the algorithm of the policy. And it would self-repair or self-amend to improve the output again. And so my personal interest was in international environmental law. And at the time I was in school, we were looking hard at the Kyoto protocols for controlling greenhouse gases, which ultimately did not succeed. And the project I was going to take on and was just too big a bite at that time was to hypothesize about how we can better design global climate agreements systems, because the agreements are complex systems that have 120 plus players, or perhaps a whole lot more if you want to include corporations in addition to the governments that actually have to implement the policies. It's a big idea. It's a big problem. It's not something I came close to building a model for on my own or solving on my own. But that is an example of how I see design thinking and its applicability to social systems, perhaps being able to add value and improve the creation of these large-scale systems. I worked in healthcare for a while, and I can tell you, as almost any American can, that if we had the opportunity to design American healthcare over again from scratch, we would not go in the direction that we are now currently find ourselves in. We would not design healthcare insurance to be tied to one's employment, et cetera, et cetera. That raises the interesting question of redesign, because most design, in my view, in social policy is going to have to be redesigned. 
it's very, very difficult in the same way in the olden days, it was very difficult to unpack spaghetti code before code became modular because the way to fix code was to write more code on top of the old code, nullify the old code, put the new code into operation. And then the next time around, it needed to be reversioned a year later. Then you just layered more code on it until you got the pile of spaghetti code that was literally and figuratively wrapped around the axle and inoperable. We have to find a better pathway to social policy that can be more easily amended towards optimality. There are a lot you just said there, Dave, that's really <laughs> interesting. Let's start with the feedback loop that you were talking about. And, you know, the example you used of Kyoto Accords, that's like starting with a very advanced example, like really complicated, as you said. But I imagine the same logic holds for any law. And I'm just curious if we take an example, I don't know what it would be. I don't know if there are any run-of-the-mill laws anymore. Everything's so complicated, but <laughs> I'm sure you could think of something. And is it the case that once the law is set, is passed, there is no ongoing learning, development, adjustment, feedback, correction, redesign, what have you? The research I've done suggests that there's very precious little of it. And I want to make this point because it really hit me. I knew it intellectually, but it struck me really deeply when I started to dive into this. And that is we have a major chasm <laughs> just in the U.S. and elsewhere as well. But I was just focusing on the U.S. between how the for-profit private sector operates and nonprofit or public sector operates, which is to say that feedback loop is going to exist and does exist robustly in the for-profit sector. So if company X puts out software program Y and it's buggy and it needs to be reversioned, it's in the company's best interest to get on top of it, do it fast, get it right, move it out and keep moving forward. And that feedback loop is fairly solid. And that's because it all serves the organization's larger objective. Whereas in the public sector, when Congress or a state legislature passes a law, there's nobody who profits, who benefits, whose job it is, and who gets rewarded for saying, oh, this law that's been out there for a year isn't working the way we intended. We should probably bring it back in and see what we can do to amend the law or revisit the policy. The only way that happens is if somebody in the private sector decides to lobby it into the legislature and explain it to the legislature and push and shove them in the direction of fixing it. But oftentimes those fixes are biased fixes, not with society's interests in mind, but with the particular lobbyists for-profit industry in mind. And so sometimes those fixes are suboptimal, at least for the general public, which is what the legislature is supposed to be sworn to protect and uphold, as it were. So there's this huge schism between these two worlds. And what's so annoying is that it's so obvious that we know how to do it and we can do it in the private sector, but we don't do it and won't do it in the public sector where with respect to issues like healthcare and climate change, or even now voting rights, there just isn't a constituency that profits in some way, shape or form, not just financially, profits from pushing the feedback loop all the way around so that the law or policy is improved. I'm not sure if I got to the call of your question there, so I apologize. You did, and you got a really interesting take on it, I think. What I'm thinking of now is, well, Congress passes some new tax legislation, and what happens? Well, the other side, tax lawyers, Wall Street, consulting firms, they have way more resources than the government does, and they have the smartest talent because they pay them 
10 to 100 times more than they get paid in the government. Their job is to find loopholes and they do it very, very well and it's continuous. So sometimes you see, I don't know, the IRS go move to try to close a loophole. Sometimes you see that, but it seems like it's a, it's kind of like a whack-a-mole type of thing because you can't possibly keep up. And so in fact, the feedback loop comes from entities, people that are trying to exploit the weaknesses in the design in the first place, Mm -hmm. as opposed to fixing the design for the greater good. And I think to your point, who would do that? There has to be some incentive to do that. And actually, I think there's a disincentive because if you pass some type of legislation, then you come back a year later and say, you know what? We messed that up. We got to fix it. Most people don't like to have their name on that and acknowledge a mistake that happened. In the past. <laughs> That's a very good point. In companies too, that happens. And, you know, we call that sunk cost. Your example comes out and it's buggy. That does not stay. That does get fixed. But there's a lot of projects within companies that just take a long time to get adjusted. One last thing is Jeff Bezos, not only, but He in particular has advocated experimentation. And I remember when he spoke to, testified to Congress a couple of years ago, he lectured them on how Amazon works, which is pretty interesting and gutsy as always. But one of the things he said, he talked about how experiments are so central to their strategy, their design, if you will, as an organization. And he said, if you know that the project is going to work, it is not an experiment. That's such a simple line, but really meaningful and accurate. So I'm going to guess that experimentation is part of design thinking. I like it to weigh in on any aspect of my addendum and extension to what you just said, because there's a lot of sides that is pretty interesting. Well, you know, I hadn't heard that quote from Bezos before, and I'm equally as impressed by it because what's embedded in that statement, and maybe this is already obvious and I'm just catching up, what's embedded in that statement is you don't know most of the time if a policy you're going to put in place in your organization is actually going to work. And he says, if you do know that it's not an experiment, well, if you don't know, and that's the vast majority of any policy I've ever seen in any company, whether it's personnel policy or whether it's product policy or decisions, then why not call it an experiment? Because that's what it is. And if you call it an experiment, then you reframe the thing in a way that allows you to treat it and manage it better. Okay, we're going to put in this pretty basic HR policy, internal entirely. We're not looking at the marketplace. We're just, except for the marketplace, maybe in workforce. And we're going to do this policy for our workforce. A common example would be work from home during the pandemic. And now the decisions that need to be made about which companies are going to allow work from home to continue and which ones are going to start clawing their employees back into the office. And how are they going to pull that off? Nobody knows how that's going to play out any one of the flavors of policies that might be chosen. So it really is an experiment. So if you think about it from the perspective of an experiment, and yes, as an aside, the D-School embraces experiment to the point that we have uh, faculty who are dedicated to just the concept of experimenting in design. I think it helps the decision makers and the implementers to think about the proposed policy a little bit more robustly and also to implement it in a more careful way, perhaps with test beds or perhaps some very significant focus grouping and interviews, employees, et cetera, rather than just saying, okay, CEO decided today that Elon Musk was going to be on the board. And then a week later, the CEO decided to write a letter saying, no, Elon Musk's not going to be on the board anymore. There's a lot of speculation about why that happened in the last couple of days, but I'll leave it to the pundits to figure out what really happened there. But that was an example of a policy decision that was made, but it really was an experiment and somebody didn't get their ducks in a row and somebody didn't get themselves lined up analytically to move somewhat methodically through the process. And there was a failure in there somewhere. 
And by the way, failures are instructive. Everybody knows that. But the experimentation piece, and maybe I'm wandering off the call of your question, the experimentation piece, I think, is really important. And I like the way Bezos framed it. I have some issues, I think. I'm not a deep student of Bezos or Amazon, but I think I have some issues overall with the organization. But that statement, I think, is really powerful and one that business people could take a lot away from in thinking about things they do that are not predictable, more in the nature of an experiment. Without the pejorative downside of we're just guessing or throwing runes on the floor, but we're actually very consciously, almost methodically experimenting with something that will help the organization overall. I mean, there's a whole science to experimentation as well. You think about Google and their famous moonshots, they lost a ton of money on those moonshots, billion dollars one after another. And with their, when CFO Ruth Porat came in a couple of years ago, they became a lot more disciplined around that. Now, let's see if we could bring the issue of climate change a bit more closely into our conversation. Why is this just going on Why is it getting worse? Why does it seem like it's getting worse? Of course, I want to know what we could do from a design thinking point of view, but let's start with why we're in this mess that just doesn't seem to get better and the consequences of failure are becoming clearer and worse. That's a terrific question. And there are probably several really solid answers to it. Here's where I'll start. When I came to Stanford as a student in 1991, one of the first classes I took was what they called global warming at the time. That's how far back it was. And it was co-taught by Steve Schneider, who you may remember is one of the breakthrough climatologists, first guy to model the global climate on a computer and one of the Nobel recipients before his untimely death. Back then, one of the first topics that was well understood and addressed is it's in human nature. It's in our deep in our lizard brain DNA that we respond to critical threats and we do not respond well to chronic threat. We respond to the acute and not to the chronic and climate change is the chronic. People use, I'll use it here, but I don't care for it. People use the example of the frog in the pan and the water temperatures going up and he doesn't notice it until it's too late, et cetera, et cetera. There's an element of human nature that does not seem to have the capacity to grasp the magnitude of future risk, even if the data are present in front of them at any given point of time. So there's that piece. I think that's less of the issue than the political economic structure that has emerged in the world, in the U.S., in the major economies and in the world over the last 50 to 100 years, which is in the U.S. at least, this strange and exponential combination of individual freedom, individual property rights, coupled with a very aggressive kind of capitalism. And in the last 20, 30, maybe 40 years, you may have a disagreement with this, what I would see as a fairly poorly regulated capitalism. And ultimately, we get to a place where corporations, large corporations with a lot of money, have proven that they can control to a significant degree the laws that get passed and the laws that don't get passed. No for-profit corporation is going to voluntarily increase expenses and reduce profits and revenue simply for the warm fuzzies of reducing their carbon footprint or shifting from virgin petroleum plastics over to more expensive recycled or plant-based plastics to put their soda water in and distribute it around the world. And so they need to be made to do that by some force, whether it's law or economics, they're going to have to be forced to do that. But to date, as they have come to understand very, very well the realities of the science of 
climate change, they do not seem to be changing their behavior. Governments do not seem to be changing their behavior, whether it has to do with petroleum or whether it has to do with plastics or any of a million other climate change issues. So the big machine has its operators in place, big money, big government, and it's driving a bulldozer that is in the nature of a one-speed elephant. I mixed my metaphors there. And it's going to be very hard to redirect that one-speed elephant in the direction of bending the arc, for lack of a better phrase, of carbon pollution back towards drawdown. And so it's going to be, in my view, ultimately up to the population of the world to figure out a way to collectively, forcefully send the message that governments and corporations are going to have to do this. And it has to be out of self-interest. It's got to be in the self-interest of the people who hold reins of power. It's got to be in the self-interest of the people who control corporations to make the moves. So some modicum of carbon reduction is begun. And then it has to become a social norm that is so ensconced like smoking that no one dares violate it for fear of basically social ostracization. So let's just go a touch deep on that. And we can't possibly get to every aspect of it in in the space of short conversation. But when you talk about citizen activists, Mm. how does that happen? I mean, I guess we can understand what it means, but in practice, how can that happen? I mean, do you have any practical advice for people who care a lot about this issue and want to be one of those citizen activists, for example? I myself am not a lifelong professional activist, so I would defer to those remarkable people. The book I am working on now is going to speak to ways that design thinking can help people make the move from sort of stasis to progress, make the move from doing what we all hopefully do, or many of us like-minded do, the, the small things in recycling and composting and hopefully shifting to more efficient vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. All of which is great, but none of which as an individual action is going to resolve climate change. It all has to be done en masse in the truest sense of the word. Activism, as I've studied it so far, has proven to be a very intriguing phenomenon. One of the examples that I use is the Arab Spring. And I don't know if you're familiar or your listeners are familiar with the story. I'll try and be brief about this, but there's a story to be found here. A young man in Tunisia by the name of Mohamed Bouziz lived in the outskirts of town and was a farmer with his father. His father took a loan from the bank to irrigate the farm so they could produce better and more crops for sale. His father got sick and died, and the farm, even as Muhammad was working on it with his uncle, could not meet the payments. The bank took the farm, and Muhammad ended up having to work to support his family by taking money from day lenders, buying fruits and vegetables from others, putting it in a wheelbarrow and going into town and selling on the street. He became a street vendor. It's just one of those things in life that happens to so many people that we're unaware of. Well, the corrupt police in town harassed him for, quote unquote, not having the proper permit. But what they were looking for, of course, was the bribe to allow him to continue to sell his stuff. And he refused. Ultimately, they took his wheelbarrow and his scales and his vegetables and kicked him to the curb, literally. So he went down to the local governor's office to complain, to ask to get his property back, and they wouldn't even give him a meeting. This is the sad part, so bear with me. So he decided to go out into the street in front of the government office building. He was so frustrated with all that had happened in his life, and he doused himself in gasoline and lit himself on fire and self-immolated and, of course, died the next day in the hospital. What happened from there was the Arab Spring. 
Tunisians across the country were so outraged and so filled with anger against the corruption of the government that they took to the streets. And in the course of two weeks, they forced the president, quote unquote, president who had been in power for 23 years, effectively as a dictator. They forced him to flee the country. He fled to Paris. They kicked him out. He ended up finding sanctuary in Saudi Arabia, more or less under house arrest. But they toppled a government, a dictator, by the sheer force of the number of people in the streets protesting government corruption. And it happened not by intentional design. It happened because the system was in place that had the energy ready to explode and it needed a trigger. And the trigger was what Mohammed had done. Well, then same thing happened with Tunisia itself was then the trigger for 11 different nations across North Africa to do much the same and famously ended up in Gaddafi being murdered in the streets in Libya, et cetera, et cetera. But some 11 countries either saw huge reform in their governments or actually were able to topple those governments. To me, that's a really strong example of the way activism works. And so I'm hesitant to even suggest that there's sort of a central designing, a central designer or plan that one can spin up that will cause all these people to come together. To me, the system is more in the nature of a loosely aggregated group of people with very strong feelings and like minds about what needs to happen. We're waiting for, in America, waiting too long, waiting for some kind of trigger spark that gets everybody to take the step from outside of the circle to inside the circle. And that then develops its own momentum. Moving, you know, it's the law of inertia. Activists in place tend to stay in place. Activists in motion tend to stay in motion. And so how do we get people to jump, make that first move? And that's what I'm going to try and talk about in my book about convincing people that they do have power when we feel powerless and we really all feel powerless. I certainly feel powerless in the face of climate change and any of these other big problems. One that really hits me to the core is systemic racism, not just in policing, but systemic racism in the U.S. I don't have a ready answer, but I'm going to do a deep dive into trying to figure out if it's possible to encourage people to find just some modicum of motivation to team up with, let's say, for argument's sake, a co-founder on a small project in the environmental space, and then see if enough people can do that, teach them ways to network, social media, scale, teaming up, growing cohorts, sharing information, sharing blueprints or green prints, as I like to call them on their environmental projects so that they can be shared with a country in Africa or a country in Asia and more and more and more activists can develop the energy and then let it go in the wild. That is quite a vision for what might be possible. The truth is there are examples in history of exactly that. You mentioned some, but there have been revolutions in a variety of places, many over the years. Sometimes they do start at a grassroots level and they're taken over by, I don't know whether I call it government people, but people that eventually become in charge. Sometimes the mass population can be manipulated to do something, but there are examples. For that research and work that you're doing, I'm not an expert on this topic, but it does sure sound like you're talking about a social movement. And there is some really good research on social movements, including, I think, a book by a professor at the Stanford Business School a number of years ago, Huggy Rao is his name, who wrote a book about social movements. 
movements. I think that would be quite interesting from kind of a design perspective and then social movement perspective to try to think about what could be done. Because I think you're right that leaving it to the literally the powers that be is not working. It's not going to happen or at least not going to happen soon enough. I feel like really, I've said this before, but really the tip of the iceberg, there's so much more, but I struggle to bring us to a wrap up, but I'm going to do it because that's kind of my job as a podcast host, even though there's a lot of ideas and thoughts that remain to be explored. But this last one you just left us with on, you know, world of activists, of climate activists, billion activists is really a cool idea that's going to need a lot of work and a lot of energy. And I also like the idea of taking what we've learned about scaling, which is, of course, a classic Silicon Valley term, and applying it to this problem, which really also requires learning across these individuals or you talked about teams of two or teams of whatever number to generate that learning. I could see that being not just a worthy book to do, but a blueprint or a green print. I like that also, a green print to come out. Let's wrap up with this question, which is one of my favorite wrap up questions because it's about advice, but it's particular advice because it's kind of personalized. It's advice to yourself. If you could magically go back to when you were 20 years old, doing whatever you were doing when you were 20, and lean over to the 20-year-old Dave Johnson and say, you know, if there's one thing you should know or do or think about that you can't possibly know now, what would be that little bit of advice you might give yourself at the age of 20? I feel pretty strongly about this answer, at least specific to me. And it's something I even mention these days with students. And that is, for me in particular at that age, I needed a mentor or several. I needed the courage because I was a shy and younger than my chronological age person when I was in college. I needed the courage to seek out a mentor and enough awareness to figure out which professors or adults would be good mentors. And so that is the advice I'd give myself to find the courage, accept the fact, and I hope you agree with this, Said that all of us who are professors teaching at any level in any university, whether a young person is a student in our class or not, we welcome the inquiry to help mentor young people. It's absolutely a necessary part of our job. So for young people out there listening, if you're, say, in the 20 age bracket like this question, understand that there will be open doors when you seek mentorship from an adult, whether it's a professor or not. Some doors will be closed, but just keep knocking until you find a few mentors who can help you make decisions that you may not have the full set of experience or equipment to make. It, for me, would have made an enormous impact on my life when I was 20, and it's the law of trial and error that I didn't, but that is, I still think I ended up okay, but that's not proof that that's the right pathway. <laughs> so... <laughs> My argument is for 20-year-olds, seek mentors and ask really good questions and listen really carefully to their advice, including when they refer you to read certain books. I think that's a great perspective. It's the old expression, if you don't ask, you don't get. And get might not be a perfect word here, but you know what I mean. I've always believed in that philosophy. That you do want to ask, and then you have a chance to give back in all sorts of different ways. I'm also going to say, because you bring up this topic, and yes, I'm approached by many, many people. And actually, I've created a, I don't know, create is the right word, but it's been completely organic, a little practice of talking to the kids of friends of mine, <laughs> friends of ours, or family members for that matter, that are in their early 20s up to 30 now, which I love to do. I enjoy it very much. Sometimes it actually is helpful. 
A lot of people like to do that. I'm going to say one other thing, which is in an earlier podcast this season, I spoke to Shelly Zalis, who is the CEO of the Female Quotient. And when we were talking about mentoring, she said, well, you know, I don't think it makes sense to have one mentor. Nobody could know everything. She used the term mentoring in the moment. And I never heard it quite that way. And I thought, that's pretty clever. I mean, everyone comes up with the right model for themselves, but mentoring the moment means being open to asking for advice, not to find that one perfect, in quotes, person, because there's no such thing, right? but to be open to asking. And often that's the beginning of a very engaging, interesting conversation where there's a lot to be learned on both sides. These leaders that I talked about earlier that generate talent, I call them super bosses. That's the title of the book. And the thing they love almost as much as anything else is learning, not just teaching, which they are teachers in many ways, but they love to learn. And that that turns them on to be able to learn and becomes this addictive process where they engage with more and more people to help people get better learning along the way and they want to keep doing it. And that's, I mean, it's a pretty good model, I think. So yes. Can I pick up on one idea there before we close out? Because you said something that I thought was really interesting and it has to do with mentoring in the moment, but also mentoring the kids of friends. And I had that experience once. My friend's son, who was trying to decide between taking work at a big firm or going back to school for a master's degree after college, I'll leave it at that. And I got on the phone. I didn't know what I was going to say, asked a couple of questions. And the idea that came to mind and the idea I want to share, because it sort of surprised me that this was where I started, was this young man was, say, 21, 22 years old. The first thing I told him, I said, you have all your life, including, you know, through your parents, been taught the default assumption that your career will probably end right around 60, 65 years old, and your life may be in the 80, 85 year range if you're lucky. But at your age, that model is no longer going to be true. You have to assume that you're going to live to be 100 maybe 105, that you may work until you're 80, 85, depending on what you choose to do. And so in that framework then, and you may have three, four, five careers, or you may retire, you may be a fire retiree, financially independent retire early at age 35 or 40, you don't know. But reframe this decision of should I spend a year in doing a master's or should I get started working a year earlier than that? Frame that in the reality of a 60 to 70 to 80 year lifespan from this point forward in your life. And I think you will start to see how decisions start to slot themselves. The big decisions of getting married as opposed to the smaller decision of maybe taking a year to do a degree. And I left it there. I didn't talk about the degree and I didn't talk about the advantages of going back to work. And as I recall, I think he actually ended up going back to work. But it struck me that this is just one of the many significant changes that technology and the power of technology is going to bring to bear on the generation of people that we would be mentoring. And it's important to be mindful of the world that they're entering. That's probably going to have more technological changes than even the world that you and I entered from 20 to 50 or 60, which was its own right, a remarkable technological arc. Absolutely. That's a great story. I think that's pretty awesome advice because I have found the young people are in such a hurry. I understand why they're in a hurry. I mean, especially when they're in elite universities, for example, not all are, but those, they were in a hurry to get there. They were working like crazy. It was a full-time job to get in in the first place into a place like Stanford or Dartmouth. And there's no reason to be in such a hurry, but it's a very hard sell because they don't know that. They don't know what they don't know and they can't fathom it. It's kind of like the old story about the things that are easiest in business school are the hardest in the real world. 
the things that are the hardest in business school are the easiest in the real world. And no one gets that until they're in the real world. I'm talking specifically about so-called soft topics, about leadership, organizational behavior, managing people, influencing other people without authority. That stuff is boring and sounds easy and obvious, but people spend their life trying to figure that out and they don't always succeed at it. The stuff that's hard, figuring out how to do some spreadsheet modeling or what have you, as soon as you move forward, you're going to hire some smart young people to do that, but you can never outsource strategic thinking. You can never outsource leadership. So anyways, on that note, which I think is a good way to wrap, Dave Johnson, thanks so much for being on the SITCAST, sharing your point of view, some of your ideas, and I think giving us all a lot to think about. Really, it was my pleasure, Sid. This is one of the best podcast interviews I've ever done. And I really appreciate the thoughtful leading of the line of questioning and the areas of discussion that you provided very much. I appreciate it. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SITCAST is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.